Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. That's where we'll be at here in a bit. Uh, As I said earlier, uh, first off, welcome if you are new to City Church, if you're just here for the first time, if you're a mom and you came with uh, your son or daughter, welcome. Super glad that you're here. Um, For you to know, we are in a teaching series right now as a church where we are just walking sort of passage by passage, story by story, through the Gospel of Matthew together in the Bible. Now, specifically right now, we are in a portion of Matthew that focuses a lot on the people that Jesus interacts with during his ministry, sort of the the wide variety of different people that he comes across during his life. And today, I think, is a fairly significant moment in the story of Jesus. Because in today's passage, Jesus starts unpacking his plan for making himself known to the ancient world around him. So so thus far in the story, Jesus has been flying fairly under the radar, or at least as under the radar as a God-in-the-flesh miracle worker can be, right? So he's still been keeping a pretty low profile. On a number of occasions, we've actually seen Jesus tell people that he heals to not tell anybody about the fact that he has healed them. So so he's at least still got some relative obscurity about him and his ministry at this point in the story. But in in the passage that we're going to look at today, that does start to change a little bit for maybe the first time in the Gospel of Matthew. In this passage, Jesus is going to lay out at least part of his plan for making him and his movement known to his world. And considering that making Jesus known to the world is also something we are very interested in doing today as followers of Jesus, then I think there's plenty that we can learn from this particular passage open in front of us. So let's take a look and see what all of it is about. Starting where we left off last week, chapter 9, verse 35. Here's what it says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So at this point in the story, Jesus is continuing what he's been doing all along in the story so far, teaching, preaching, and also healing. But as he does all of that, today we read in the story that something starts to happen within him, within his spirit. At this moment in the story, we read that Jesus looked across the crowds in front of him, and it says he has compassion for them. Now, the English translation of this particular verse almost softens what the text means just a little bit. 
So the word in the Greek for compassion is the root word splagnon. Can you say that with me? Fun word to say. Splagnon. Try not to spit on anybody as you say that. Splagnon is the word there for compassion. It's where we get our English word spleen. It, It means to be moved in your guts, in your stomach, in a deeply emotional sort of way. So have you ever been watching a movie or TV show or whatever the case may be, And there's this moment in the story where the music swells and something deeply emotional happens and it's almost like you can feel it in your stomach in that moment of the storyline. If you watch the show, This Is Us, it's what happens every five minutes. That's how you know it. It's when you almost feel your emotion rising up in you from your stomach. It says that that's what Jesus feels when he sees the crowds gathered around him. His stomach churns with compassion for them. So here's what he does about that compassion. Take a look with me at verse 37 of our passage. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Stop right there with me. It says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. In other words, Jesus says, there is more work to be done out there than there are workers to do the work. So Jesus calls all of his disciples to himself. Likely this was more than just the 12 disciples. It could have been as many as a couple hundred people. And he asked all of them to pray together. Now, I think it's worth pointing out how different this course of action is than our typical response to there being too much work to get done. If you and I have a task before us and we're overwhelmed with the amount of work or effort that it's going to take, do we typically pray first for that task or do we typically get to work? We get to work, right? I mean, there's stuff to be done. We got to take care of stuff. We typically get to work first. I mean, even sometimes within the church, this is how we approach things, right? So we get overwhelmed by the amount of people in our city or in our world that need to know Jesus. And so we have an evangelistic event or we do some sort of outreach initiative within the church. And listen, those can be great things to do. I'm not knocking those at all. But evidently, especially when it comes to kingdom work, Jesus thinks that prayer should come first. We ask God to move, and then we move. That's the order of service in the kingdom of God, so to speak. So here, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that God would send out more laborers into the harvest. And then we hit verse 1 of chapter 10. Remember, in the Bible, the chapter divisions and verse divisions were added later. So we're we're meant to read this right after what we just read at the end of chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, right after Jesus asked them all to pray, it says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Notice, Jesus gives his disciples the authority to do pretty much the exact same things he has been doing so far in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles, that word apostle just means sent out ones, are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, 
Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. It says these 12 in verse 5, Jesus sent out. So we'll pause there for just a second. Now, first, let's just acknowledge this is a sneaky genius move from Jesus, right? So in the last part of the passage, he told all of his disciples to pray for more laborers to go out into the harvest. They do that. They pray for that. And then starting here in verse 1, he says, surprise, you guys are the laborers. You just prayed for yourself. So the good news is your prayers have been answered. The even better news is that you are the answer to your prayers. Congratulations on praying so effectively, right? So I almost titled this teaching, Be Careful What You Pray For, (laughs) right? Because I think there's probably times in our lives where, where we feel led to pray for something, and sometimes God does it or he uses somebody else to do it or he uses a different group of followers of Jesus to do it. And I think there are some times when we pray for things in our life, we ask for a need to be met for somebody or something to be done for kingdom purposes. And I think sometimes the Holy Spirit then says to us, yeah, go ahead. That sounds great. You should do that. I think that's kind of what happens here in the passage. Now, for clarity, it wasn't everyone who prayed that got sent out. It looks like it was kind of a subset of that group. But still, I think I want to use this method more. So the next time you guys hear me say something like, hey, let's just pray that God raises up 30 people from somewhere to go plant a church in another part of our city or our nation or our world. You should all be thinking, wait, is he doing the Jesus thing here? Is he about to ask us to be the 30 people? And the answer is yes. Yes, he is absolutely doing that. I got that straight from the life of Jesus. But that's kind of what's getting, that's kind of what happens in this story. After Jesus asked them to pray for laborers to send out into the harvest, he sends some of them out as those laborers. So here's the big idea. I told you earlier that today's passage is about discovering what Jesus' plan for making himself known to the world is, and here's the plan. People are the plan. People are the plan. God's plan to bring his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven is to entrust his power, his authority, his teaching, his mission to his people. That's how God has decided to go about it. And that's it. That's the whole plan. No no marketing strategies, no church growth paradigms, no tweetable catchphrases, hashtag go get the harvest, right? None of that. Just God's people making God known to the world. That's the whole plan. That's God's method. It always has been. And you and I as followers of Jesus get to be a part of that plan. It's an incredible responsibility that we've been given. So about a month ago, our church staff uh, grabbed lunch with Tyler and Brooke Martin. I know a lot of you guys know who Tyler and Brooke are. They are the campus ministers at an organization on UT's campus known as Chi Alpha. I know a lot of you guys who are here on Sundays are actually a part of that ministry. They've been meeting at our building uh, this past school year. We had lunch with Tyler and Brooke. They're just two incredible, smart, kingdom-loving people. 
And we were talking to them a little bit about discipleship. They, like us, are really passionate about helping everybody in their ministry take their next steps towards Jesus and become more like Jesus through interpersonal discipleship. And while we were having lunch, they asked us a question that has been haunting me ever since they asked it. They said to us, they said, if City Church had no website and no social media presence, would anybody new ever come around? And then I said, I don't like that, ask, that question. Ask a new one. <laughs> but have you ever thought about that? If there was no way for people to search Google or Instagram as it is today for churches in Knoxville, and the only way for people to find out about what we are up to here were you guys, people who are already a part of City Church, if that was the case, would any new people ever come around our church family? Or to be honest, forget about City Church specifically, if all the churches in the United States had no online presence, no social media, no YouTube channel to broadcast their services on, would anybody in the U.S. new ever come to know Jesus? Because we do realize that's how it happened in the first century church, right? Like, people back then were not just scrolling through their Instagram feeds and being like, that church looks like it has a cool vibe, maybe I'll try it out next Sunday. That's not how it happened. What was happening then, and for the first many, many centuries of the church in the world, was that the Spirit of God moving through God's people was making God known to the world. God's people were and always will be God's plan. Not websites, not social media, not even church services, as great as they are. People are the plan. So the, the question for us, I think, in response to that reality, is are we, as followers of Jesus, participating in that plan that God has? D do we see that task as our task? That, that's at least one thing that I think this passage is getting at. So for the rest of our passage, the rest of our time together this morning, here's what I want us to do. Now that we know what God's plan is, and now that we know our part in it as followers of Jesus, I want us to talk a little more specifically about how we go about that plan. How do we go about being sent out as God's people, as his representatives to the world? As we seek to make him known in our workplaces, in our classes, in our friend groups, in our neighborhoods, what sort of postures should we take in that process? What should it look like in practice? At least in my experience, the problem for most followers of Jesus that I know isn't that they don't realize they should be making Jesus known. They get that. The problem usually is that they struggle to know how exactly to go about that, how to do it in practice. And that, I think, are what the instructions Jesus gives in the rest of this passage are all about. Verses 5 through 15. I think those verses can help us with how we go about that mission. Now, really quickly before we get into that, we do need to acknowledge one thing. And that's that we need to acknowledge that these instructions that we're about to read in the rest of the passage were not written to apply directly into our context today. 
They were written to a very different group of people at a very different time in human history. So in order to figure out how exactly they apply to us in 21st century America, I think we have to do a little bit of work. We have to do a little bit of digging. So we have to look at these specific instructions that Jesus gives to his people in Matthew chapter 9 and 10. And then we have to sort of peel the context back a little bit and look at the reasons, the motivations behind them, and then we have to situate those reasons into our context today. Does that make sense? I know that sounds very complicated. I promise you it's not as complicated as it sounds. Let's dig in. So what we're going to find are four postures to guide how we go about making Jesus known to our world. With each of them, I'll give you the idea. I'll show you how I got there from the passage, and then we'll talk a little bit about what that posture looks like in practice. You guys with me? You awake? I love it. 10.30, all you guys that came to the nine are just like, I feel so awake right now. Like, give me something to do. I've been awake for hours. Well, here you go. Four postures for us to consider from this passage. Here's the first one. Go to who you know. Go to who you know. So first, I think we're instructed in the passage as Jesus' disciples to consider taking the good news of the kingdom to the people that we already know and currently interact with. I get this posture from verses 5 and 6 in the passage in chapter 10. Take a look with me there. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, in this particular mission that Jesus gives his disciples, Jesus wants the disciples to prioritize reaching Jewish people rather than Gentiles and Samaritans. Now, here's what's interesting about that. It doesn't seem like Jesus views his mission as exclusively to Jewish people. He's been interacting with and healing and including plenty of non-Jewish people, even in the Gospel of Matthew so far. So why do we think he limits the disciples' mission here to only the people of Israel? Well, some of it probably has to do with how God has always done things. His mission was always to reach the nation of Israel and then to use the nation of Israel to reach the rest of the world. That's page one, almost, of the book of Genesis. That's always how God has done things. But most commentators I read said that there's actually probably another slightly more practical reason to why Jesus says this to his disciples at this point. So think about it for just a second. The 12 disciples that Jesus sends out were themselves Jewish men. And so it's highly likely that at this point in the story and this point in their training, these 12 men were not yet equipped to cross significant cultural boundary lines yet. They, they likely weren't ready to proclaim the message of the kingdom to a very different group of people with very different cultural backgrounds and beliefs and all of that. They just weren't ready to do that yet. They hadn't been trained long enough yet. So it's likely that Jesus is sending the disciples first to the nation of Israel because Israel is who they're currently equipped to reach. He is, in essence, getting them to prioritize existing relationships, or at least familiar sorts of relationships, over forming brand new ones that they may or may not know how to navigate at this point in their story. So, all of that to say, I think it's worth us asking for our context today, who are we most equipped to reach with the good news of Jesus? You individually. Who are you most equipped to reach 
with the good news of Jesus? Chances are it has a lot to do with the types of people that you interact with and see on a regular basis, right? So if you're a college student, chances are you are at least fairly well equipped to reach other college students with the good news of Jesus. If you're a parent of young children, chances are you are fairly well equipped to contextualize the gospel for other parents of young children. If you work a blue collar job, chances are you're pretty well equipped to reach other people working blue collar sorts of jobs. Or, or perhaps you could even think about your story. So if, if Jesus rescued you out of a lifestyle of addiction of some sort, well, there's a pretty good chance you're, you're equipped pretty well already as a follower of Jesus to proclaim the good news of Jesus to other people in that type of lifestyle. You've got some context for it. You understand sort of some of the things that they're dealing with and how the gospel might be especially good news for them. If Jesus rescued you out of an unhealthy, hyper-religious background into an understanding of mercy and grace, chances are you're fairly well equipped to reach other people in that type of sort of hyper-religious environment. Often, the relationships that we already have and the relationships that we're already in frequent contact with, those relationships are already primed and ready for making Jesus known to those people because there's familiarity. There's, there's a common foundation between you and the other person to some degree. And it probably makes a lot of sense to at least start there when you think about who you are equipped to reach with the good news of the kingdom. Now, obviously... That is not to say that you're limited to just reaching those people. That's not what I'm saying at all. God may use you to reach people that you have absolutely nothing in common with, and that's a fantastic thing. But I do think there's at least a lot of wisdom in asking the question, who has God especially equipped me and positioned me to reach with the good news of Jesus? And I think this is helpful at a practical level because sometimes when we think about telling people about Jesus, the sheer volume of it all can like create paralysis in us, right? So we go, okay, what am I supposed to, am I just supposed to like walk up to every person that I see on a regular basis and tell them about the good news of Jesus? Maybe, but sometimes it helps to narrow the playing field just a little bit, to think about who has God especially positioned and equipped me to reach and how might I proclaim who Jesus is into their story, their scenario. That's the first one. Go to who you know. Okay, next posture. Number two, proclaim and display the message. Proclaim and display the message. So I think we're called to do both of those two things, proclaim and display. This one I get from verse 7 through the first half of verse 8 in our passage. Verse 7 says this, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So notice just in those two verses, there are two types of actions described there. First, the disciples are told to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to announce that God has arrived on the scene through Jesus and that he is restoring things to how they were meant to be. They're told to proclaim the message. But second, they are also told to do things that display 
the message. Did you see that? To embody the message of the kingdom. Specifically here, Jesus calls them to display the message by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons. By displaying tangible signs and evidence of the kingdom of God being at hand. They're called to proclaim, but also display. So today, in our context, There are some Christians that would say what really matters is proclaiming the gospel. But that's what we should be doing. Let's preach a lot of sermons. Let's get those sermons online and on YouTube and on the radio and on TV. Let's go door to door. Let's let's talk to thousands of people. Let's hand out thousands of gospel tracts that have the gospel message on them. Let's make lots of TV and movies about the message of the kingdom. And let's just get the message out. Let's just proclaim it to as many people as we possibly can. That's the goal, proclaiming for them. And then there are others who would say, no, 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 what really matters, what we really should be spending our time doing is displaying the gospel. So it's not so much about getting a message out, that's kind of preachy and that's off-putting to people. It's really just about loving people and demonstrating God's love to them. It's, it's about preaching the gospel and, and when necessary, using words. Let's just love people all of the time and just hope that somehow, in some way, that leads them to discovering who Jesus is as a result. And to be honest, a lot of times, these two camps of Christianity spend a lot of time throwing rocks at each other. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. It might be a pastor thing. It might be like insider baseball a little bit. But they spend a lot of time arguing with one another and saying that the other group is the problem and they're not seeing it accurately. But here in the passage... It would seem that the solution is not either or. It's it's not proclaiming the gospel or displaying the gospel. It's actually both and. We shouldn't just proclaim the gospel, but we also shouldn't just display it. We're called to proclaim and display that message. Both are needed. So a, a message about Jesus without actions that demonstrate Jesus's power is lacking. You're missing something but also actions that demonstrate the gospel without ever communicating the gospel itself is also lacking. So it turns out we actually need both. We need them working hand in hand. We need to proclaim the good news and also demonstrate exactly how it is good news with our lives. So proclaim the gospel, yes. Tell people about Jesus and who he is and what he does, but while you do that, actually show them how it works. Show them how a relationship with God works. Let them get a close-up glimpse into your life. Let them observe how you view friendships differently. Let them view how you approach sexuality and sexual expression differently. Money and possessions differently. Don't, let them, don't be afraid to let them see precisely how you approach each of those things differently because of the message of the gospel. Because that's going to show them that Christianity is not just a set of ideas that you ascribe to, it is a way of life. It is a message that has a tangible impact on how we live our lives day to day, hour by hour. And at the same time, please display to people the power of the gospel. Live differently, be different, love people consistently but don't let it stop there. 
take the time to actually explain to those people that the reason you live differently is because Jesus has rescued you out of your sin and into his kingdom. Proclaim to them that it's not just that you happen to be a nicer than average person. It's that Jesus has set you free. Because that's going to help people see that following Jesus isn't just about being a pleasant person. It's about a man and a message that changes the very fabric of people's lives as a result of encountering it. We need both. We need proclaiming and we need displaying the gospel. Third, we're also called to own the task. Own the task. So third... I think we're called to own the task of sharing Jesus with people rather than outsourcing it to other people or talking ourselves out of it. Let me show you where I get this one. It comes from the second half of verse 8 through the end of verse 10. Jesus says, you received without paying, so give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So let's talk about what's going on here in this passage. At the time, it wasn't uncommon for teachers and preachers and philosophers to travel from town to town, house to house, and make a living doing all of that, make a living sort of talking to people about their particular brand of philosophy or religion or ethics or whatever the case may be. So they would they'd go to different people's houses, they would go to public places in the city, and they would sort of wax eloquent about some type of philosophy or ethical principles, and then they would ask for payment. They would ask for donations from people as a result of the people listening to them about whatever topic they were discussing. So think, in our context, it would be sort of like street performers in a big city, but a little more highbrow. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how things were happening back then. That's a thing that people would do quite often. But Jesus, in contrast to that, in this passage, the verses we just read, Jesus is basically telling his disciples, that's not what this is. That's not what I'm asking you to do. You're not going and proclaiming my kingdom in order to make a living or get rich doing it. That's not what we're about. He says, you received this message without paying for it, so I want you to relay this message to other people without asking for payment for it. In other words, the, the kingdom is not something that is primarily spread and proclaimed by professionals. That's not how the kingdom of God works. It's spread by everyday people encountering the kingdom of God and seeing it as their responsibility to tell other people about it. That's what it's like in the kingdom of God. Now, here's why I think that matters for us today. Telling people about Jesus, what some people have called evangelism, is not a job for professional Christians to do. Or at least we could say not only a job for professional Christians to do. It, it's not... The, the way that it works is not for, for me or Jeff or Eric or Sarah uh, to, to do what we do here on Sundays, and your job is to invite people to come watch us do what we do on Sundays, and that's what evangelism is. That's not what we're doing here. The, the job is not to invite people to a church service so that they can hear the professionals talk about what really matters in life. So we've used this illustration before, but I think it's a really helpful one. If, if church is a sport... Some people treat Sunday services like they're the game. 
Sunday services are the game. So they bring their friends who don't know Jesus to the game to watch the professionals do their thing up here in hopes that that person might like what they see at the game enough to become a fan. So become a a Christian or a member of the church or whatever the case might be. I think a lot of people and churches operate as if that's how it works. But biblically, that's not what this is. That's not what we're doing right now. Biblically, you guys are the players on the team. You're the ones out there in the game Monday through Saturday around the clock. If anything, the people up here on stage on Sundays, we're just the coaches trying to help you guys do what you do. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because we also are in the game, so it's like we're player coaches. It gets kind of complicated at some point, but you guys see the difference there. We are not the players. We are not the professionals. You guys are the professionals when it comes to the kingdom of God. We're just, help, we're just here to help you do what you do. We're just help, here to help train you on how to think about those things well and how to go about Monday through Saturday making Jesus known to your world wherever you are. So church services are not the plan. Cool church programs and initiatives and events are not the plan. People are the plan. You guys are the plan. Our job here is simply to give you the tools that you need to go about all of it. Do you see the difference there? So here's the reality. Most of you interact with more non-Christians in a day than I do in a week. So if the kingdom of God has any shot at transforming the people in our city, it's going to have to happen outside of an hour and a half here on Sundays. It's going to have to happen outside of the people who happen to show up on Sundays to hear me or whoever it is talk up on this stage. It's going to happen through you guys. You have access to all types of people's lives that I will likely never have access to. And it's through those relationships that the kingdom of God takes root in our city and in our world. And on that note... You do not have to be a professional at talking about Jesus to share Jesus with people. I know some people feel like I wouldn't even know where to start when it comes to telling someone about Jesus. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to say it. It's just going to go horrifically bad if I try to talk to a coworker about Jesus. But here's the thing. I can almost assure you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you actually do know how to share Jesus with people. Do you know how to answer the question, what was my life like before Jesus, how did Jesus rescue me, and what is my life like now? Then you know how to talk about Jesus with people. Use your own story. Just tell them the difference that it's made in your life to be a follower of Jesus. And I'll just add to that, uh, the goal is not to say, I was really broken before Jesus, and then I met Jesus, and now my life is perfect. That's not the message. The message is that I was broken before Jesus, Jesus saved me, and I've still got a lot of stuff I need to work on, but I am now free from my sin and the things that plagued me because of who Jesus is and what he did for me on the cross. That's the message that we're proclaiming. If you know how to tell your story in regards to what Jesus has done for you, you know how to talk to a coworker, a friend, or a classmate about the good news of the kingdom. If you know how to talk about those things, you know how to share Jesus with people. No professionalism is needed. Okay, one more. Last one I think we see in this passage and then we'll be done. Last one is trust God for the outcome. Trust God for the outcome. This one comes from verses 11 through 15. 
It says, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. And in context, Jesus means receptive. Worthy means receptive in this context. Find out who there is receptive to your message and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy or receptive, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That, in other words, was a sort of symbolic way of saying, I'm, I'm done here. Kind of like you and I might use an expression like, I'm washing my hands of this. Very similar in this passage. Shake the dust off from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In case you're unfamiliar with that reference from the Old Testament, it did not, in fact, go well for Sodom and Gomorrah. Just to make sure we're all clear, wanted to catch you up on the context there. Okay, so there's obviously a lot in the verses that we just read, verses 11 through 15. Essentially, though, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to trust God with the results of their efforts when it comes to telling people about him. So we might read some of this and think, man, this sounds kind of cruel or unloving or ungracious to interact with people in this sort of way. Like, it, it seems kind of weird to just be done with anybody who doesn't receive the message of the kingdom. But seen rightly, I think Jesus is actually trying to free up his disciples and take a little bit of the weight off of their shoulders that's there unnecessarily. So I think this should actually be incredibly freeing. Jesus is saying, you are not personally responsible for other people's hardened hearts. You are not personally responsible for people that refuse to accept the message of my kingdom. You are not required to force people to see what they do not want to see. You are called to faithfully offer the kingdom and the peace of Jesus to people in whatever way that you can. Proclaim and display the message of the gospel however you can. Share with them in whatever ways that you can. But at the end of the day, how they respond is between them and God. It's between them and God. When you see Jesus face-to-face -face one day, follower of Jesus, he is not going to ask you why you weren't convincing enough or clever enough or smart enough to coerce more people into his kingdom. That's not what he's going to ask you. He's going to ask whether or not you were faithful in telling people about him regardless of how they responded. You are just called to be faithful, Christian in the room. And really, I think this takes us all the way back to the word picture that Jesus started off our passage today with. Because what did he say right before he sent the disciples out? He said, the what is plentiful? The harvest. The harvest is plentiful. So I, I know not many of us in the room are farmers. So let me just tell you, explain to you what a harvest is. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. It's just a different analogy for us, okay? So a harvest refers to a, a group of crops of some sort that are already ripe. They're ready to pick. They're done. They're done growing. They don't need to grow any longer. They're already ready for you to go out and reap and gather them and bring them in. They're finished. All you need to do is pick them. That's what a harvest is. 
So here's why I mention that in context of what we're talking about this morning. I think some of us may be convinced that when it comes to displaying and proclaiming the gospel, we think we have to create the harvest. I think some of us are convinced that it's our job to make people want the good news of Jesus. But according to Jesus in this passage, that's not our job. That's already been done. Our job is to go and gather. There are people in the world right now, there are people in your life right now, at your job right now, in your summer classes right now, who are already hungry for the good news of Jesus. I promise you, because Jesus said there are. There are people in your life that are already hungry for the good news of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. They might realize that they're hungry for God, or they might just know they're hungry for something other than what they've been trying so far. But either way, there are people in your life that are currently hungry for the good news of Jesus. The harvest is there, it's ready already as we speak. What God wants is laborers to go out and gather the harvest. So I'll just leave you with the one necessary ingredient in all of this that you absolutely cannot neglect to consider when it comes to sharing about Jesus with people. The final ingredient is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is who makes every one of those four postures effective as we go about them. He's the one that prepares the hearts of every person that you are going to interact with in order to help them come to know Jesus. He is the one, the Spirit is the one that prepares your heart and mind for who it is that you need to pursue and how it is that you need to pursue them. So often when I hear sermons and seminars and classes taught about evangelism, they're all about methods and tips and tricks and best practices, and I'm all for that. There are some really helpful things out there, but often there is one glaring omission when we talk about the mission of God, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives and hearts. At the end of the day, this entire thing, everything we're talking about this morning, people coming to know and experience the good news of the kingdom, at the end of the day, that is God's job, not ours. He simply gives us the ability to join him in it. He has already gone before us. He has prepared the hearts of the people that we're going to talk to about Jesus. He has helped them expose things in their life that are not working, that they're currently trying. He asked us to go out and gather. He asked us to be sensitive when he's saying, hey, why, why don't you ask that person one more question about their life? Why, why don't you ask them one more thing about what's going on right now? Why don't you ask them one more question about what their thoughts are on God or church or whatever the case may be? He's asking us to simply follow him in that mission. The harvest is already plentiful. God's looking for workers. So here's what I want us to do as we close. If you've got a, a bulletin or a journal or something to write on and something to write with, if, you've done, if you haven't already, I want you to take that out. If you don't have something to write with or write on, no worries. Maybe even just pull up the notes app on your phone. That's totally fine to do, however you want to do it. Just something where you can jot a couple things down real quickly. Once you've done that, here's what I want us to do. 
trying to get really, really practical with all of this, trying to take it from the big picture and the postures down to what we do tomorrow. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down or type in the names of three people that you see on a regular basis. So let's say you see them once a week or more, most of the time. People that you see on a fairly regular basis who you're at least pretty sure do not have a relationship with Jesus. So who is that? Maybe you know their names. Maybe you've already had some conversations with them. Maybe you don't even know their name. Maybe for you it's that barista that I see at Honeybee every Tuesday morning when I get coffee. Maybe you don't even know who they are yet. But just jot down three people that you see on a semi-regular basis who you're pretty sure don't know Jesus, or at least you're not sure if they do. You've never talked to them about Jesus to know that they have a relationship with them. So I'll just give you a few moments, three names, jot those down. All right, so three people you see on a regular basis that you're pretty sure don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship with Jesus. If you struggled to come up with three, no worries. Feel free to keep working on them um, as we sing or after you leave here or whatever. But I just want you to have three people on your mind, on your heart. If you've only got one or two right now, that's fine. But I just want you to keep those people in mind. And just like Jesus modeled for us in this passage, in Matthew chapter 9, I want us to pray for God to send out laborers to reach those people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you have already done the work that needs to be done. God, thank you that when you look out and you see the people in Knoxville in our world, you see the people at our workplaces, you see the people in our classes, on our campus. Um, thank you that when you look out, your, your stomach churns with compassion for them. And so first, we just wanna ask that you would create that same sort of compassion in us. God, that when we see people in our world that don't know Jesus, we wouldn't see uh, projects, we wouldn't see notches on our belt to brag about how we brought somebody to the Lord. God, I pray we wouldn't even see obstacles or arguments or debates that we need to have about you. God, I pray that when we see the people in our lives, when we see the people we come into contact with that don't know Jesus, I, I pray that our posture would be one of compassion that our stomach would turn within us with compassion at the fact that they do not know you and do not experience life with you. God, there are people in our world right now that are trying every single thing in their life to try to provide them with something that only you can provide. 
And God, as people that know what that feels like, that have been through that before in our lives, God, I pray that when we think about that, it would just move us to compassion. That we would so badly not want them to cause more damage to themselves or others or people in our world because they're trying to look for the world to give them something that it cannot give them. And God, I pray that we would be moved to compassion. And God, then we pray that you would send people out as laborers into the harvest. The harvest of people in our city and in our world that are isolated from you. The harvest of people in our city that are chasing thing after thing, wanting it to give them something that it can't give. I pray that you would send out laborers into the harvest. And God, that through that, many, many people in our city would come to have a relationship with you for the very first time. God, I pray that we would see that as our task. God, we ask for laborers. We ask it in your name. Amen.